The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. Zach Childs, and welcome to the True Tone Lounge. Today, our guest is Steve Gibson. Hey, Zach. Steve Gibson has played on around 200 number one singles when you take into account pop, adult, contemporary, and, uh, and country charts, and uh, has a, a long and storied career as a journeyman session guitarist. He has worked with George Harrison. You know, George Harrison gave you the nickname Clark Kent. <laughs> <laughs> Which we'll talk we'll talk more about that later. Sure. And uh, Steve has you know played on on so many as I said before so many you know number one singles that that you've heard. Uh, he's been a producer of note for the last uh, well he just finished a stint uh, a fifteen year stint as the musical director on the Grand Ole Opry and it's just an honor to have you here, Steve. Thanks. I'm really pleased to be here. It's an honor. Wonderful. Well, you grew up in Peoria. Uh huh. And how did you learn how to play guitar? How did you pick up the guitar? Um, my dad was a guitar player who was born and raised in Kentucky, moved north for the, for the work back before World War II. And so he was a hillbilly at heart. He had an old, wa- um, uh, an old Kalamazoo, almost said a Washburn, but it was a Kalamazoo small box flat top guitar. Yeah. And uh, the strings about that far off of the neck. As far back as I can ever remember, and as far as any of my family can remember, there was a, an attraction to music for me. Uh, I used to wander around as a toddler banging on a stick in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had older brothers who, uh, who exposed me to rock and roll in its formative years. My dad was the guy who helped me to learn about and understand all the traditional country music artists. And then my brothers were always bringing home Ventures records or Elvis records. So I was always kind of driven by the Buddy Holly effect, which is why I'm holding this guitar. Um, the Buddy Holly effect to me was the, the, the original uh, four-piece rock and roll band uh, with one guy who played these great solos that were real rhythmic and real driving, and, and mm-hmm. the whole thing was just harmones, you know, the young hormone guitar player thing. Right. <clears throat> and it was great, and it was cool, and yet they still did, he did melodic stuff. You know, I, I was really impacted by Buddy Holly. So when you were uh, when you were younger, were you mainly learning from, like, your brothers and your, and your father? Did you have, like, a Mickey Baker or Mel Bay book? How were you, how were you learning? Ear. Yeah. Uh, spending countless hours in the basement listening to records, 
right. slowing them down from 45 to 33. Mm -hmm. um, anything I could do, hanging out with other people. My uh, parents knew other folks their age who had little hillbilly bands all through central Illinois. But I had a lot of opportunity to hang around with people older than me and better than me. Mm -hmm. And that's always be the slowest guy in the room, you know, mm -hmm. that thing. You can always learn more by listening and being around people that are better than you. My ears were always faster than my eyes. I'm not a reader. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I can read chord charts and read read charts, but I'm not a reader of the dots. Mm -hmm. um, and I've tried, and my brain just isn't wired to do that. There's something missing there in the connections yeah. where I can't absorb that as fast as my ears. They're just so much faster than my eyes. Hmm. So um, when I, when I uh, realized that uh, that was going to be the way that I would learn, I pretty much ditched the idea of learning to read music, which I regret in some respects today. It clearly didn't hinder my path but I wish I knew more about it now. Um, it just wasn't a necessary skill set to have in the time that I was doing what I was doing. Right. So you, you continued to progress in, in Peoria uh, to the point where, uh, you know, country acts that were coming through town, you started being part of their pickup bands, and that's, again, where acts would, would come through town. They don't have a band. They would pick, you know, they would get the, the best players of the area to come back them up. You would learn their material and then, <laughs> then perform with them. Yeah. And before long, you you were getting a job offer, and instead of going out on the road, you decided to move to Nashville to try to make it as a session player. So what, what made you want to be a session player instead of a touring guitar player? In Peoria, there was a real recording studio called Golden Voice Recording. If you ever look them up, there's, um, there's a lot of really fascinating history about Golden Voice, and it was in mm -hmm. the middle of a cornfield, literally. And around Peoria at that time, um, music was everywhere. It was a factory town, and music was everywhere in the 60s. It was the, the British explosion, and everybody played music. Dan Fogelberg was... Uh, uh, Peoria boy, Gary Richrath from REO, yeah. um, Jonathan Kane from Journey, uh, Dave Kirschenbaum, who went on, he owned a small studio downtown, and he went on to be an executive at RCA and produce a number of hit records. It was just a hotbed. There was lots and lots of music. So we all got our start down at Golden Voice by going in and recording mm -hmm. in that studio. And in those days, much like the pickup band thing, was uh, you would have local or regional artists who would make a record and they could get it on the radio back then. So I got the call to come down and start playing guitar on sessions there. And uh, I started when I was 14. And uh, I, the first time I walked into a studio, I said, well, this is the deal. This is, this feels like home. Hmm. And uh, so I continued to do that for several years and then finally uh, had met enough people in Nashville by way of either their transition through the Peoria area uh, or just by reputation. Um, there was a fellow named Bob Millsap who uh, had worked in radio in Peoria and he was in Nashville. He was a songwriter and a producer and a jingle guy and, and a publisher. And I got to know him a little bit. I came down a few times. And uh, so now to connect up to your part of the story was is that uh, I was still living in Peoria and uh, a country artist named Nat Stuckey offered me a job. And it was 175 bucks a week to go on the road. So I called Bob and I said, listen, Nat Stuckey's in town. He offered me 175 a week. 
think I ought to take it? He kind of laughed and he says, gosh, that's a lot of money. I said, yeah. He <laughs> said, well, how would you like to make that in a day? Well, I'd like that very much. <laughs> Where do I sign up? Yeah. So Bob uh, offered to let me stay at uh, he and his wife's home. He said, come down, let's see how it goes. Let me talk to your mom and dad. And uh, we figured it out. I was 19. And I just rolled over my uh, anniversary. I came uh, June 6th of 1972. And I had a session that night at 6 p.m. Um, at Creative Workshop where I met Buzz Kaysen. And, uh, and so the connections started happening and got to know people and uh, uh, played on a little of this and a little of that. There was a ton of demo business back then, songwriter demos. Mm -hmm. Uh, lived in a little neighborhood around Vanderbilt, and I got to know Guy Clark and uh, Dave Loggins, and we'd all sit around and play music all the time. And then I guess the first big hit record I was involved in was Loggins' record of Please Come to Boston, which was a big record. And I played the acoustic guitar on that one, the little thing on the front, the signature lick on the front. Um, and then, you know, it's amazing that once you play on a hit record, everybody's a genius. Uh, everybody in the room is a genius. So the phone started to ring more. Playing in the studio is different than playing live. And there's you're, you're under the microscope as far as your, your timing and tuning and all those things. Were you, when you came to Nashville, had you had enough experience? Were you ready or were you kind of under the gun and, and kind of trying to catch up with some of the other players? That's a tough question for me to answer. Someone else yeah. may, may be able to speak to that better than me, but I felt like I was ready because I'd had yeah. a, enough experience in the studio where I played different instruments with different people on different songs, mm -hmm. uh, understood the basic miking setup and, and um, how the process worked and, and working within a rhythm section. Uh, but clearly it was like uh, steroids on steroids down here moving in being the youngest guy and still the lowest guy on the totem pole, you, you got a steep learning curve because mm -hmm. everything's moving a lot faster here and there's no time to, to, uh, uh, to sit down and try to analyze it or figure it out. You either bluff your way through it and hope that it worked or you really yeah. study and do your homework and analyze it and uh, try to do your best in either case. Yeah. Many people tend to play too much in the beginning because they're not listening to what else is going on in the room was that something that, that came more naturally to you to just to to kind of have an, an arranger or producer's mentality mm -hmm. i think it was yeah. everybody's got a different approach to this mm -hmm. my influences in listening to music and growing up were not to be a speed player or a soloist or an artist or anything i mean you know i respected chat and and Jerry and all those guys that were so incredibly good, and they were artists, but my heroes were Hank Garland mm -hmm. and uh, Grady. Yeah. Um, the guys who played fills. They, the, I mean, that was my whole understanding of what we do is that you know how to play an intro, you get to fill the second verse or turn around, mm -hmm. and, uh, and when it's not your turn, you stay out of the way. So I think I had a pretty good grasp of that coming in. Yeah. The mechanics of being part of a bigger result. You know, it's not about me. It's not about the guitar player. Yeah. 
And when I overstepped, I had great mentors, including Bob and others, who accepted me into the fraternity when they didn't have to. Um, the A-team guys were always very gracious to me, and they were helpful, and they took care of me, and they let me in the door when the doors really did say closed session, no admittance. And then they gave me great advice. What's an example of, of some of the advice that some of these A-team guys, that were you know kind of golden advice that you got from them? Oh, God. The best piece of advice, Zach, that I ever got in my life was to be aware that the chair you're sitting in belonged to somebody else two weeks ago. You're in it this week. Right. And there will come a time when the next faster, younger guy will come into town and you won't have this chair anymore. So be gracious along the way mm -hmm. and be gracious on your way out. That's the single best piece of advice. Other great advice was that uh, listen to the singer. Of course, it all sounds so simple, but it's true. Yeah. Listen to the singer. Uh, have the best equipment that you can afford. Buy the best gear that you can have. Take care of it. Make sure it works. Don't be the guy that's going to stop everything in its tracks because in the studio, at least during that, my era, the money was, you know, the clock was rolling fast and uh, time is money. So mm -hmm. come in prepared and be ready to go. I had so many of those people that all of them were mentors and they all gave me great advice. Yeah. Another great piece of advice that I figured out that somebody explained to me that this, this is about psychology in the studio. Everybody in this room needs to get something out of this experience. The artist needs a hit record, the producer needs to keep his gig, the engineer, everybody wants to get something out of this experience. Right. So listen and watch and observe and then figure out how to give them what they think they want. Tell me more about this kind of psychology of, of, uh, of, of the session world. I think it's, uh, can you give me like an example of, uh, of a time or, or, you know, how would you you know, implement this in uh, you know in a in a situation. So you're on a session. It's never the same way twice. Yeah. Uh, and it's for me, it was instinctive. It included things like after you get to know everybody and you understand what particular pressures people might be under, or it could be life pressures. It could be that you right. know somebody who's in the middle of a divorce, or somebody who you you know going in, this is their last shot. Right. Right or you know that uh, on the label maybe, mm -hmm. or, or, or you, you sit and you think about that and you consider what you do and how you do it more carefully. And I guess things like being able to give ground when somebody has a better suggestion than you have or a better part. Um, if a producer wants a specific kind of thing, you try your best to give it to them. And if it's not working well, sometimes you gotta say, maybe this would be a better piano kind of thing, or maybe it's a better ensemble part. Right. Making suggestions carefully. Mm -hmm. Psychology sometimes is trying to help the producer or the artist or another musician or whatever, trying to help them out of a jam and save face, do it with dignity. Right. And be prepared to let them take 100% of the credit. It's great, yeah. you know. And staying positive much as you can, and there are plenty of times that it's hard to do. But part of the world that I lived in was, there were so many things that we did that were not just regular recording sessions for label artists, but there were jingles. Mm -hmm. There were songwriter demos. There were custom records. And some were amazing. And a lot of them were pretty bad. 
and you couldn't just sit there and telegraph your frustration or your, you know, you kind of your disdain for this thing. You know, it's like, Ugh, what am I doing here? This is. You had to give it a hundred percent and treat everybody the same every time out. Because the truth is, is, nobody ever knows when one of these things that you might not think a lot of in the moment is going to turn out to be some enormously successful, world-changing kind of music, life record. Yeah. Have you had an example of that? Yeah. I'll give you a good example of it. Uh, I think it's a good example. John yeah. Anderson was a new artist on Warner Brothers Records. I want to say this was 81 or 2. It's been a long time ago. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> early 80s. Yeah, early yeah. 80s. We were uh, doing sessions on him in Columbia Studio B, which was the Quonset Hut. Right. Frank Jones was producing. Fred Carter Jr. had called me for the session. He was leader. And uh, and we were all playing. And we came up to about, I don't know, a quarter to five. And Frank came out and said, well, we've got one more song we want to do. It's a real simple one. Now, that's always the... The last thing you want to hear because that means, oh, God, okay, it means we're going to be here till midnight. Right, they're going to keep us late. Yeah, right. Yeah. We're going over. Yeah. No dinner tonight. Real simple little song here that John's got. We just like to do one or two takes on it. Mm -hmm. The song turned out to be a record called Swingin'. Wow, that was a big hit. A big hit record. Yeah. Huge number one record. And we're all going, yeah, it's a little ditty and it's cute. And, and turns out we didn't know it at the time. It was going to be like a landmark record for John Anderson right. during that period of his life and, and music. And what was even more extraordinary is that once we finished it, it might have been, well, I don't recall who it is, so I won't name a name, but an executive walked in and said, you need to get everybody's attention here. We've just played the last record to ever be recorded in Columbia Studio B. Uh, as of now, uh, the studio is shut down. Wow. So it ended up being a million-selling record, number one record. It was the last tracking date done in Columbia Studio B, after which they shut the doors. And it was, so it was this really interesting yeah. grouping of significant things that you think about it and you go, wow. And for me, it was a big deal. For a lot of people, they may not understand that significance. Yeah, that's but uh, very significant. It was very significant to be attached to, to that because Columbia B was such a wonderful recording studio. And the studios themselves have a voice. Yeah. You get to the point where you can hear and you can tell if a record was cut in the Quonset Hut. Or you can tell just by the sound of the record if it was cut at Little Victor. You know, it got less and less of that way as technology leveled the playing field. Right. But you heard more of the room and, and more of the the gear to an extent. Yeah, Absolutely. you yeah. sure could. You could hear yeah. more of the environment and the studio itself had a voice um, and uh, it became part of the music. So we'll, we'll back up a little bit, back into the end of the 70s. You became part of this new format called Adult Contemporary. <laughs> yeah. It was a big deal. And like I said, the first, uh, I guess, the first AC, big AC pop record that I played on was Boston. And uh, so we lived dual lives. You'd get up in the morning and go do a, George Jones at 10 and 2, and then you'd go work on Dr. Hook at 6. Mm -hmm. or, you know, you'd have, sometimes you'd have a whole week booked of one or two kinds of projects. But I had made friends with, and still to this day, he's one of my dearest friends, is Kyle Lenning. Kyle was an engineer over at the Glazer Studios, Tom Paul Glazer's place. Right. 
And we'd gotten to know each other, and we're both kids, Illinois kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kyle has always been a terrifically gifted musical engineer with great ideas, and he was starting to dabble with production. And so we cut these records on, um, it was Dan Seals and John Ford Coley. So it was England Dan, John Ford Coley. And we recorded them in a studio out in Hendersonville called Studio by the Pond, mm -hmm. which was Lee Hazen's place. It was his basement, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and next thing you know, um, this AC format was huge in the 70s. I mean, huge. And um, next thing you know, we're having hit records there. And then uh, it, one thing leads to another, and the phone starts ringing. And so there, for a long time, it was myself and uh, Larry London, Joe Osborne, or Jack Williams on bass, Shane Keister on piano. Um, Bobby Thompson played a lot of acoustic guitar on those records. And we were making all these records that we were basically working for people in, in New York or Los Angeles, but we were doing it all here. Yeah. And then uh, I got started producing uh, during that time period, about 76, 77, started with uh, Gene Cotton, um, and then uh, produced uh, Michael Johnson, Bluer Than Blue, and played on all those records uh, we worked with. Yeah, an Olivia Newton-John album and a Neil Young album, and a, you know, this and a that. Crusaders came to town and yeah. played on stuff with them. So. With uh, England Dan and, and John Ford Coley, the, uh, the tune I, I'd really love to see you tonight. I'm assuming that's that's, that's you me. playing. The, uh, the the guitar part, there's uh, you know harmonized guitar. That was kind of a big thing in the in the '70s. Where did, where did that come from? I mean, was you know, I know Andrew Gold was kind of doing that, and there were there were kind of multiple. Who who kind of uh, you know started the harmony guitar thing on pop records? Well, that's a really good question, and I'd have to scratch my head and think hard about it. Where did you get the the inspiration to to do it on on the songs that you recorded? Louis Shelton had some influence in that. Okay. Um, from from some of his work, maybe with uh, Seals and Crofts. Seals and Crofts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, Louie, being one of those L.A. guys, the L.A. guys all tended to play 335s, play the right. Gibsons, and we right. were more of a Fender town here mm -hmm. for most of the work. But uh, the harmonized guitar thing was, I don't know, I guess it was a lot of it was just me and Kyle uh, trying out ideas and saying, hey, that's pretty cool, but what, right. what would it sound like if we doubled it? Yeah. Okay, so then he'd very speed the multi-track down just a tiny bit. And we'd double the parts. To or, give it a little bit of a chorus effect, a uh -huh. little, little pitch, you know, shifting. Four man's chorus. Yes. Then we'd say, well, that's pretty cool. What about if we put power chords under that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's cool. What about if we, hey, I wonder what a harmony part would sound like on that. I don't know. Let's go try it. Let's go try it. Yeah. Then I guess adult contemporary kind of you know moved on and what what happened with the uh, I guess it it continued, but well, it, it evolved. Yeah, it just evolved. Nashville, I felt like Nashville got out of the AC business because of Urban Cowboy. Okay, you know Urban Cowboy um, came along and. Uh, even though a lot of the early Urban Cowboy records I don't think were even cut here. I think John Boylan did some of them in L.A. and, and you know, they were cut out there. I guess a few were cut here. 
but it just changed. Yeah. The, the marketplace took a turn. Um, radio took a turn. Yeah. And uh, with, with AC, it started to get more influenced by uh, uh, more urban music. The LA guys were making great records and kind of blew past what we were doing here. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the decade of the 70s had some of the greatest music overall, across genre, that was ever made. The format, the recording format was great, 24-track. The, uh, the writers were great, the artists were great. You know, it's like I can still listen to Year of the Cat. My record's 41 or 42 years old now, and it still is a magnificent record. To me, it's a perfect record. Right, Tim Renwick uh, was the guitar player on uh -huh. that. Yeah. yeah, it's a perfect record. Yeah. The 70s seemed to be a, a golden period where technology had moved along enough to where you were able to get a better reproduction of sound and better sounds. Mm -hmm. And not to horribly dog on records made in the 60s, but there was there had been advancements. But there, we didn't have the uh, you know the onslaught of, of heavy synthesizers in the backbeat yet. Yeah, all the other genres were going on. The fusion jazz type stuff was coming to be in the 70s, and, mm -hmm. and uh, you had great music coming out of so many great places. Atlanta. Right. Uh, Memphis was still great. Philadelphia. Right. Miami. Oh, Miami, yeah. Sh Shoals. Uh, there were so many music centers at that time, and the music was pretty diverse. Going back and listening now, I think, you know, some of those disco records were pretty damn good records. Yeah. Yeah, they they kind of got again. They got dogged at the time, but then yeah. people began to appreciate them. It's like people, you know, were able to appreciate the BGs. You know, ten yeah. twenty years later, that right. they couldn't at the time. So, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. The BJ Thomas tune, uh, another somebody done somebody wrong song. From hearing it and from seeing the uh, that Chips, you know, produced it, I always assumed that Reggie played on that, but you played on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it was it was all the the you know the American Memphis guys on there except you. Yeah, much. I did yeah. several things with Chips during that time period. We did a uh, bunch of things, and and uh, BJ was one of them. That was an SG uh, Gibson SG that I got for Christmas in 1964. Mm -hmm. I played on that record. I still have it. Mm. Uh, yeah, the Memphis guys were were good to me. Yeah. All of them were good to me. Every time I would walk in the studio and see Reggie, I thought, oh, this is going to be a great day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're going to have fun here. Yeah. Let's back up a little bit. When when you moved to Nashville, who were some of the guitar players here in town that really heavily influenced you? I came here in uh, June of 72, and at that point, um, that was kind of skipping across from the A-Team generation and then the, the subset of the A-Team in the 60s, which was Lloyd Green and Billy Sanford, Pete Wade, right. Ray Edenton was still around, Bobby mm -hmm. Thompson. Right. Um, Grady was still around, worked with Grady a number of times. Wow. Mm -hmm. Grady was nice, you know? Yeah. All the stories that I had heard about Grady being this tough, gruff guy, it was, none of it was true. He couldn't have been a bigger sweetheart. Grady had a chair downstairs in, in the old Quonset Hut, Columbia B. And it was sitting right there in front of the, the amplifiers, the electric guitar station. Everybody had a place in that studio where they sat. And uh, first time I ever worked in there, the engineer said, you set up over here, but you can't sit in that chair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. He says, no, I'm serious. That's Grady's chair. 
<laughs> okay, you know, yeah. I get it. I want to sit in Grady's chair. Um, other guitar players who influenced me, I was listening to a lot of different kinds of music. I was listening yeah. to the New York guys, um, Hugh McCracken, who I always admired as being a, an inside the rhythm section player. Right. Incredibly good. Eric yeah. Gale. Um, of course, everybody was influenced by Cornell Dupree. And in the LA side, it was Louis, Shelton, right. Dean. Dean Parks. Uh, Dean, Dean and I have had careers that roughly parallel each other through the 70s and 80s and 90s, and Dean's still playing great today. He's he's just one of the best. So, But I was listening to as many different kinds of music and different kinds of people as I could. So I was being influenced by... And it, we are all influenced and continue to be influenced, whether you're an artist or a stylist. But I'd listen to... Uh, something on the radio or, or have an album that we'd listen to and I thought, wow, that's great. I'm gonna I'm gonna just pick a little piece of that off and tuck it in my back pocket. Yeah. I'll find a place to use that. We all yeah. borrow from each other. Anybody who says they don't is just lying through their teeth. Yeah. <laughs> we all take from each other and hopefully we all give back to each other too. Yeah. cowboy period things things change but then you're part of kind of this neo-traditionalist movement with randy travis yeah besides playing on all these pop records right you're also part of this neo-traditionalist scene which is funny because it was kind yeah. of lenning right again the same, the same gentleman that had been involved in those you know, and, and then dan seals reinvented as dan seals that's right yes whom i loved dearly yes. danny was one of the sweetest spirits in the world and i think we made some amazing records yeah with dan but kyle and i for so many years, you know, we made records together and it was sort of a natural evolution. And the next thing you know, he says, I've got this young guy. <laughs> it's I've got Randy Travis. Yeah. And uh, there you go. So that lights the fuse and that's yeah. another new door to open. And uh, during that period, I was, was working a lot, working a lot. There yeah. were years where we'd do 600 dates a year, year wow. over year. It was not uncommon to do 20 a week. How did you find time to sleep? Well, when you're younger, you can get by with it a little yeah. easier. But I will confess that I gave up lots of nights and weekends uh, with my family and with, mm -hmm. with just living life. But it was not uncommon at all to have 10, 2, 6, and 10. Right. You know, And you get to a point where it gets tough to do that without without being concerned about, wait a minute, did I just play this lick on somebody else's record? Right. I came from the school of thought that I wasn't a stylist. It wasn't up to me to brand myself on someone else's record. I just, personal feeling. Let's, let's kind of spell that out. So, you know, so some guitar players kind of have a signature style and kind of a signature. And so when they play on someone's records, 
you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's them. Yes. Yeah. And that's great. Yeah. It's wonderful to do that. I came out of the school of thought from my listening, because um, remember, I was listening to uh, stuff from the late 50s through the 60s, so I was influenced by the Hank Garland mm-hmm. type stuff on Elvis records or, right. or whatever. I was listening to these guys, and I couldn't pick out Tommy Tedesco on a record. Right. But if he hadn't been on that record, it wouldn't have been the same record. Exactly. You know, the same is true with Hugh McCracken. Um, that's what I was talking about, being an inside exactly. guitar player. Yeah. There's two, two kinds of categories, and I always fancied myself to be an inside guitar player. Um, Where if they took your guitar part out, it would be missing. You know, something would be missing from the yeah. song. Yeah. I really like playing inside the rhythm section right. a lot. Because yeah. you can do so many cool rhythmic things and yeah. somebody hits a little thing on the piano and it's a call and response deal. That right. really happens in the studio. Yeah. There's really an electricity that goes around the room and uh, somebody will play something and instantly it will trigger mm-hmm. other things. Especially when you're working with, with uh, different guys all the time. And I think one of the big differences too is that with the guys who were who in Memphis or in Muscle Shoals or in Atlanta, they tended to work with the same people all the time. Right. Which made for kind of a branded style of playing. And it was fantastic. Wonderful. And even with Memphis, you had Reggie and the Memphis boys. Uh, and, and gosh, it didn't get any better than that. But you also had um, the Willie Mitchell crew. Mm-hmm. You had Booker T. Yeah. You had um, the Hodges brothers. So that was another rhythm section going on, yeah. you know, and, and so... That Royal Studios. Yeah, yeah. the whole Royal yeah. thing was yeah. fantastic. And I think a lot, of what that, a lot of what that branded sound came from was the fact that they all hung out together all the time. And there were people coming and going, but right. you know, it was a real brotherhood right there. So coming back to the, the business of being an inside player, so I liked to find those things where I could play on the inside. I didn't always like going for solos live on a track because it interfered with whatever I would get going inside the track. So I'd always want to come back and overdub. So I always enjoyed that and that's, I think being more of a chameleon was my approach. Can you give us an example of playing, in, you know, of, of your own playing that you see as an inside guitar part? Mostly they would be rhythmic things. I did it a lot. R- Randy Travis, most of his up-tempo things always had a, you know, You know, something right. that had a little chunky thing to it or yeah. a rhythmic part um, or backbeat things, you know. You know, you could just find a part. And that probably came out of my exposure to Motown records and Chicago records. Right. Growing up in Illinois, I listened yeah. to Midwest radio. So rhythm things inside were always really fun to play. But once you get it going, it happens, and it's real hard to drop out of that mindset and kick into a solo right. mode. Unless you were to overdub it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you worked with uh, you worked with Ricky Skaggs some again because because you weren't a, a stylist as much per se, although you did that some. But you ended up playing with such a wide variety of artists, <laughs> which which is fantastic because you you again you, you keep working and you work with so many different artists. <laughs> 
So, you know, in, in, on Ricky's albums, you were kind of called on to do the Telecaster thing. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Oh, what are, because uh, I remember seeing your name on the Coming Home to Stay album and the Kentucky Thunder album that had, I think that had Hummingbird on it. Yeah. Yeah. Was that you playing the, the, the lick on Hummingbird and then? It was. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know who actually created that lick. Yeah. Um, I was trying to think about that earlier, and I don't recall who did that. We took it off of an existing record, so it's not my invention. But yes, imagine my surprise on a Monday morning at 10 a.m. Mm -hmm. I recall this very clearly, going into Treasure Island Studio over in Berry Hill and hearing that and saying, okay, so we're just gonna leave that spot, for Ricky, for you, and you coming back, and he says, no. Yeah. You're gonna do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm not known as being a, a yeah. speed player or a fast guy then Monday morning is give us a little See, volume. I can't even I can't even play it anymore I shoot yeah. good lord I couldn't do that today if my life depended on it that's sloppy yeah. do it slow maybe does that go up like yeah. that yeah I think it slides up so I don't even remember it. And then get from there back down to. Yeah. It's a handful. It's, it a is handful. A, it's, a, it's a handful. It's not something that stays with you as you age. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite little, uh, you know, kind of intro turnaround things was uh, with Patty Loveless. There was a uh, Hurt Me Bad in a Real Good Way. Yeah. Yeah. Did you? Highly affected. It had the. Yeah. We talked a little about that earlier yeah. that it was. Uh, full of delay and chorus and how much I'd love to be able to go back and take yeah. all of that stuff off of so many of my guitar parts. <laughs> yeah. So a, a part like that, you know, because that wasn't, it wasn't like the straight up, you know, melody of the song, I mean, where, you know, how did you come up with that? Was that something that you had worked on before or you're messing around? Was that something that came up on the spot? Probably a combination of on the spot and something in the demo. Um, I don't remember yeah. for sure. I really don't. Yeah. Because you're moving so fast. Yeah. In those years, you're just going, going, going. You come up with something, you learn it, yeah. and you play it, and then you move on. You know, when you're coming up with parts, are you thinking more about you know uh, what what notes will fit over the chord changes? Are you thinking about melodies? Are you humming, you know, like how do you come up with parts? Because I like to work on solos separately or separate from the track mm -hmm. and, and not do it within the context of a track. Right. I always like to kind of listen back to the track after it was done and construct something, yeah. an idea in my head. Every case is different. Yeah. Sometimes you just say, turn the machine on, we're gonna throw it against the wall, take everything I cut, you know, everything right. I play, record it all. Yeah. And then we'll go in and we'll listen. Right. And okay, that's a good idea. We need to develop that. Or mm -hmm. this over here, that sounds like bleh. In my head, I always felt if I could listen, play my parts inside and then come back and listen to what's there and then think, okay, this is a solo. Um, here's an idea and kind of construct it. Um, from there. 
fills are a different story. You know, if you're playing those inside of a part, especially on, on a country record, uh, there's not always a rhythmic part to do. So you, you sit and wait your turn and play your fills. So how did you start working with George Strait? Uh, the phone rang and um, Bowen's office said, are you available? Blank, 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 and I said, yeah. sure. With George, you've played on at least 28 number one, you know, uh, singles for him. I lost I count. Was, yeah. I lost count. It yeah. depends. And two, the, the number one barometer thing is, it's a marker. Right. Yeah, it's a nice marker. Uh, it doesn't always, and it's just what it is. It says it's number one on Billboard. Right. And that's great. That's nice. But you'd be amazed how many records we both know that never made it to number one, you know, and you still think about it. Yeah. With George, it was a wonderful, nice, beautiful run. And that was a rhythm section that stayed together. And we cut records for years. I've lost track of how many we made. Of course, you've been involved with production through the years, again, with uh, Gene Cotton and uh, Lynn Anderson. And then in, in the 90s, you had uh, you know, McBride and the Ride and Aaron Tippin. And then how did you end up as the musical director of the Grand Ole Opry? Pete Fisher had been a friend of mine since his days at Warner Music. So Pete went to the Opry somewhere in the late 90s, I think. And one of his first calls was to me and he said, can I persuade you to come out here and come to work for us and, and clean th things up with the audio and, and maybe take a different approach to the music and the way we're doing things. And I turned him down twice. Uh, in 2002, um, I decided to take him up on it. I wound up working in, in a, a project that we developed to start archiving all of the old Opry programming material that we could find. And there wasn't as much as we'd all hoped. Okay. But we migrated all that and got that preserved. Um, it all survived the flood, by the way, the 2010 flood of Nashville. Wow. All of our work survived the flood. The video didn't fare so well. Yeah. Was, your, was your office flooded? Yes. Yeah. This was in my office. This wow. went underwater. This is a flood survivor, as, as well as all the rest of the stories about it. Wow. Um, so we worked on that kind of thing, and we started developing, producing projects uh, on the archival uh, music. That was one part of it. And then... Uh, in working with the Opry, it was kind of a full circle moment because my earliest connections to Nashville were at the Opry. When I was a child, my family would come down, drive down from Illinois, and we would go to the Opry. And uh, so it was cool. We would come down, we'd go to the old Ryman Opry's, and we would hang out. I'd hang out at Showbud Guitars down on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And go over to Linebaugh's restaurant and drink coffee just to meet Pete Drake and go to the Midnight Jamboree. And so that was my earliest connection to the town. So it was a good opportunity to go out there. And one of the things we tried to do was to bring some new ideas and some new focus to the audio and to the music. Institutions aren't easy to change. No. Especially an iconic institution that is the one of a kind in the entire universe as we know it. Nobody does what the Opry does. 
And so having that opportunity to step on board that train and, and ride along for a while, and I got there at the perfect time for me because I was able to work with so many of the legends uh, as their time came to an end. But getting to meet and work with the Jimmy Dickens of the world, uh, yeah. Porter Wagner, mm -hmm. Jimmy C. Newman, uh, Charlie Leuven, all of these people that I remember from my formative years as a child. Right. And to actually meet them and work with them uh, was an honor that is a one-of-a-kind lifetime milestone. And I loved every single minute of it. Um, we did uh, 150 live, live, one-hour television shows. I learned a lot about different things there. Um, I expanded my world into uh, television, music, which is what led me into becoming music director from there, music director for the CMA Awards and the Christmas show and uh, a couple of shows at the White House, one of which was nominated for the Primetime Emmy. And uh, I'm very proud of that. We've had a great time and we worked on these things and uh, I brought George Massenberg along and said, George, we need to fix the sound in this room and the acoustics. And so George had a hand in it and we brought some different players in and I tried to apply the same sense of caring about the music that I feel like I've had in the studio, which was treat everyone the same. Every artist that walks on this stage, we're going to treat them the same. We're going to start at the back of the stage and we're going to work forward. And we're going to treat everyone with dignity and everyone with respect. And we're going to work just as hard for this person as we do for everybody. Right. And... Um, Prepare, actually care about how your instruments sound, listen, be aware of what the trends are in the music business because the wheels on the bus never stop turning around, right? Right. And it's real easy to get into a complacency where the groove turns into a deep rut. And so the idea was we don't want to lose any of the magic or the history. you got to be respectful of where we've come from, what we've done. But you can't turn a blind eye to change in the music or in the artists or in the, in the audience. So how do we pull these things together? And who's willing to come along for the ride? We're, we're gonna have a lot of fun here. Well, those are all, a lot of challenges. Yeah. And and I'm, I'm assuming you probably, you know, met with some resistance. Anytime somebody comes in and starts making any type of changes to an institution like that, I'm sure you were met with, with resistance. And one of the things that you're alluding to is the fact that you have artists, you know, that, you know, like, like a little Jimmy Dickens that's been around since the 1940s. And then you have, you know, artists that are brand new that are coming, you know, on the Opry stage. And you have a huge, you know, gap or a huge divide in the, the type of playing, the type of sounds that are required to back up these artists. Right. So you would... It becomes, and it seems like with many players, they only have a, a certain amount of flexibility when it comes to their playing and their sound. To, to not to all of them, but some, they get. I don't want to play that, you know, you know, greasy kid stuff and things like that. So, yeah. yes, yes, there is some of that. That's it comes back to the fact that it's an institution, and some of that's entrenched in any institution. Yeah, right. Whether it's a college campus or a corporate uh, environment or the music at the Opry. Yeah. It's, that's human nature. 
And to work through that, we're back to the psychology game again. Yeah. It's how do we make these changes with the least amount of pain possible, but recognizing that the change has to happen. Coming back to when I came here as a child, my family, I did not care about seeing uh, Cousin Jody or the Fruit Jar Drinkers or even Roy Acuff. Mm -hmm. I left Latin Scruggs, but, but by and large, I wasn't attracted to that generation of music, right? right. I came to see Weldon Myrick playing steel guitar with Connie Smith mm -hmm. or, uh, or, or the Ernest Tubb Troubadours band. I came to see Jim Ed Brown or, or uh, Bill Anderson because that was the contemporary country music. And remember, I'm still pretty little at that point, but, yeah. but that's what was going on. It's really no different than what we have today. Uh, not every young artist who comes across the stage of the Opry will be a huge success or, or a star with staying power. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, some of them are going to be just through the sheer strength of numbers of the people that come across that stage. And you want them to have a good experience. And well, some of the older artists needed to be secure. They needed to know that they weren't going to be treated as second-class citizens. Right that we were not going to throw them out the door or under the bus. Mm -hmm. And we tried very hard to make sure that we protected those folks and treated them with the respect and the care that they've earned, because they've earned it. Yeah. Without those people, there would be a very different landscape in this city. So that's what we did, and it's been great fun, and uh, had a wonderful run at it, loved every minute of it, but finally reached a point where I uh, want to be free to play more guitar when I can. Um, nights and weekends, been doing it all of my life. And mm -hmm. so it was time to say, I'd like my nights and weekends back. Yeah. What would be your advice for musicians that are playing on the Opry? Embrace it for what it is. Because for one brief shining moment, you're gonna be doing something that very few people in the world ever get to do. So go, not so much expecting it to be, especially for first-timers, don't expecting that your gear is going to get all teched out. Uh, don't go out expecting that you're going to have to play what you play in the stadium shows. Mm -hmm. uh, if you make a mistake or something doesn't work quite the way you think it ought to, accept it and move on. It's all part of that Opry experience. I've yet to meet anybody that wasn't a little nervous when they go out there for the first time or, or maybe the fifth or tenth or twentieth time. For those who are out there, it's like try to put yourself in a zone where you embrace this for what it is. You know, yeah. it's it's a magical thing to do. It's very important, but it's not so much about lowering your expectations. It's about understand that this is unique unto itself. So go out, play at a level that helps everybody else do their job. Uh, don't worry so much about stuff. Just enjoy this moment and accept it for what it is. Yeah. So you had the chance to work with George Harrison. Tell us a little bit. I'm, you know, it was through Norbert Put Putnam. Yeah. 
you uh, and they had a group called Splinter. Yeah. So, so how did you get the call to play on this? Uh, I knew Norbert. Norbert played bass on Please Come to Boston. Okay. And that's where I first met Norbert. And uh, Norbert and I immediately hit it off because he was part of the anti-country or the... Yeah. It wasn't anti-country, but he was the... No. Doing other things, doing John Baez and... And Dylan uh, and Elvis. And yeah, that whole thing. He was doing the different kind of music. Um, we hit it off right away. Became pals. Still are to this day. He's, he's one of my dearest friends as well as Kyle and others. But he called and he said, uh, got this project uh, that uh, Warner Brothers uh, asked me to do. Uh, George has got a, a label on Warner with Warner Brothers called Dark Horse. And... Uh, George knows who we all are, and, and uh, of course, Norbert and David had worked with uh, Open for the Beatles back when they did Shea Stadium, I think. Anyhow, he said, would you be interested in going to London for a month um, and making this record? I said, yeah. So it was a group that George had signed to his label, mm-hmm. Dark Horse, two guys from Scotland. And uh, sure, I was in cloud nine, man. I was, uh, you know, in my mid-20s and... The whole Beatles thing was very fresh in my mind. and So we flew over and we uh, went out to uh, Henley-on-Thames, west of London, and um, went up to Friar Park every day to George's home. And uh, uh, this, the engineer was um, Phil McDonald, okay. who you will read about if you read about anything with the Beatles. The second engineer was Kumar Shankar. That's Ravi's nephew. Mm-hmm. And so I'm standing here going, how did I, it's another one of those, how did I get here yeah. moments where you go. Oh. So every day we would uh, leave the little inn down by the river and we'd go up to make this record. And uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was, uh, let's see, it was Norbert and myself, uh, David Briggs, Kenneth Buttrey played drums, and Parker McGee, who is another throwback to the England Dan John Ford Coley connection. Parker's a songwriter and singer. We'd go up and we'd start making these records, and it's very definitely a pop record. Nothing country about it at all. So we'd spend every day hanging around up there at Friar Park, and, and uh, on the weekend we'd take off and go into London, and George would put on his parts. And it turns out he was very shy. Um, kind of almost reluctant to play in front of us. Wow. And, uh, and so took him a little while, took us all a little while to warm up. But once we got to know each other, uh, he, he was just the, the nicest, sweetest guy you can imagine. Um, one day he took me down the hall and said, yeah, I gotta show you something. And he opened a door in this room and, and there, were, there were all of his guitars. There was the magical mystery tour Strat, and there was the yeah. Gretsch, and there was uh, the, uh, the the Ramirez, whatever he played, and I love her. Yes. On. And he said, he says, just do whatever you want, just put them back when you're done. And uh, it was Les Paul, and I said, so is that? And he says, yeah, he says, uh, that's the one from While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Yeah. And he turned around as he was walking out the door, and he said, uh, Eric may have gotten Patty but I got the Les Paul. <laughs> he was great. I, and I yeah. just asked all the questions I could think of to ask, but I was reluctant to ask for photographs, and I wish I had not been. But at yeah. that time, it didn't seem cool. 
but I can tell you that yeah. the slide parts were done through a little champ amp. Okay. Uh, at least that's that's what I was gonna was gonna ask you is that his he his yeah his slide guitar sound it was always you know kind of his signature I mean post Beatles, but uh, it was he he got such a unique sound and, yeah. it, and it was just the the Strat into the into a. a like a silver face champ or a black face one or a tweed one or I think they were silver face if I remember yeah. correctly. Again, it's been a long time ago and I wish I had taken more photographs. Yeah. But he was great. So anyway, the Clark Kent thing came about. There's one cut on that record uh, where I'm playing some screaming guitar solo. Yeah. But I, I was into this whole thing. I thought, well, I'm here in this country, little country village in England, so I'm gonna look the part. And I, I had worn sport coats all my life. Uh, so I had picked up this houndstooth sport coat and you know, and this Sherlock Holmes cape, you know, and mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff. I thought, well, I'm, I'm gonna look the part, take yeah. it back with me, you know, yeah. memories. And I would show up at the studio and then he walked in while I was working on that solo or after I had finished it and he looked at me and looked at Norbert and he says, he's Clark Kent. <laughs> and, um, yeah. I guess a reference to the fact that I looked more like a high school English teacher than I did playing this guitar solo. Right. And uh, so that's how I got that nickname from George. And he wrote it across my cartridge case. And one day the cartridge guys, after I got back to Nashville, I said, hey, we cleaned up all your gear. It looks really good and fresh. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> went and looked and yes, they had scrubbed Clark Kent off of my case. So it's... Aww. But there were enough people that saw it that know it really happened. Yeah. Did you get to see him play at all? or was uh -huh. he? Okay. And did he play slide? He didn't play slide. He would play these, uh, he, he mostly played acoustic guitar. He had these uh, Zematis yes. acoustics. With the big heart sound holes on them. Yeah. yeah. Great experience for uh, anyone, but it was a big experience for a young guitar player from Nashville. Yeah. From Peoria. Yes. With a Beatle. Now your production work. So, uh... You worked with, you, you told me, of course, Lynn, Lynn Anderson, Freddie Fender, uh, you know, how did, how did you really get into the production side of things and tell us a bit about that? Lynn Anderson and I had a special relationship from the time I moved to town. Mm -hmm. um, and her husband, Glenn Sutton, yeah. both of whom accepted me and brought me in, and Glenn was uh, the head of A&R for Epic Records, and so he used me on a lot of sessions. Lynn was just a dear friend, always. When Lynn and Glenn divorced, they came to me and said, we'd like you to produce Lynn's next record. So I ended up doing three or four albums yeah. on her. Because um, Glenn had been producing her records, of course, before when they were still married. That's right. Glenn did right. Rose Garden. Yeah. and uh, the records in that time period. And right. So this was after that time. Part of my qualification there was that I had just done an album on uh, a guy named Gene Cotton mm -hmm. who had a duet with Kim Carnes uh, on it. Uh, and w we made some noise with that record. And I got involved with that record because I didn't know any better. I just walked up to Gene and I, I was playing on an album another person was producing with Gene. And I said, I, I, we could do a better record than this. We'd just get together and Let's talk about it. I know we can, we can do better stuff than this. Wow. Yeah, it was yeah. not one of my finer moments, I don't yeah. think, but, but it worked. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> uh, Michael Johnson came to town. That was a spec project, had no label home, wound up it was the first record that was signed to EMI America, along with uh, Sheena Easton and Jay Giles 
and we were the very first re record that was released. Blue and the Blue was the first EMI America that came out. So I ended up kind of being a roster producer for the CBS crowd and did a number of things for them. Uh, Kyle and I co-produced a Bobby Bear record, and it was just whatever came along. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I stepped away from that for a while, went back to just strictly being a guitar player, and then uh, got my foot back in the water producing uh, Michael Martin Murphy for Warners, and then I did uh, the Aaron Tippin records, uh, some Aaron Tippin records for RCA, and uh, had hits with those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And McBride and the Ride that was yeah. my, the connection to Tony Brown, and so uh, it was always a lot of fun. I um, I did some interesting kinds of projects. I, I would step up and volunteer to do like Red Steagall. I enjoyed that stuff. It was great to do different kinds of music. And it's all over the place. I worked with Engelbert Humperdinck. I worked with an opera singer from Germany named Peter Hoffman. Did the Brian Setzer, most recent Brian Setzer uh, Christmas record. So I've kind of been, you know, not unlike my guitar playing stuff, I've been all over the map. Okay, Steve, let's talk gear. Okay. So when you moved to Nashville and you're playing on sessions, what were you bringing with you? Uh, Stratocaster, Telecaster. I had uh, the SG. Mm -hmm. um, I had a six-string fretted dobro. I had a nylon string guitar. This is pre-cartage days. And I, when yeah. I moved here, I had a Plymouth Roadrunner. And, yeah. uh, so it had this great big huge trunk. And I loaded up with... Yeah. guitars and head off to the studio. Now, is, is this in the day when uh, when studios still had, uh, you know, kind of studio amps that you would use? So you didn't, you weren't bringing your own amp at I that I was time. not. Okay. First, to start out, I wasn't. Nobody was at that yeah. time. I, I shouldn't say nobody. I'm sure some of the guys were steel players in particular, and there may have been a few guitar players, but studios had pretty good amps and they kept things pretty well maintained right because they usually had tech slash engineers right that would uh, that could work on a you know recap or put tubes in a in a Princeton or a deluxe and make sure that it was quiet mm -hmm. yeah. there were a lot of ampegs in the studios right lots of uh, lots of ampegs and uh, twins um, that's pretty much the go-to stuff deluxes yeah so tell us about this Strat. How did you how did you procure? <laughs> this is a, a January '55 uh, Stratocaster Serial Seven 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 Five, and I bought this in 1972, shortly after I came to town from George Gruen, uh, for 475 dollars, and. That was that was a fair amount of money at that point. It was, but it, needless to say, there it's a, it's yeah. a screaming bargain uh, yeah. in life. I I was attracted to this guitar because this is very similar to the '55 Strat that Buddy Holly used. Back yes. to the Buddy Holly deal. Yeah, if you see like they, the cover of the Chirping Crickets album, or, mm -hmm. yeah, that's right. And he actually Buddy had several Stratocasters. They got stolen with some yeah. regularity. Uh, this one I was attracted to because of the wear on the neck. Okay. It's real player wear, you yeah. know. It's not just worn out down here with D, G, and C. It's it's worn. Right, because most of the time when you see a lot of vintage guitars, they, they're worn out in the cowboy chord areas, yep. but then as you get further up the neck, the frets are pretty uh, pretty un, unworn. Yeah. Um, it's got a fairly hefty neck. 
yeah. a little V to the neck. This one uh, also survived the Nashville flood, although it was in the flood. Joe Glazer saved it for me. It still bears a few marks. There's a little graying right there from, uh, from the game after the flood. And this one in particular, uh, it was interesting to me because it's obviously two pieces of, of wood glued together. The top piece survived with almost no effect. The bottom piece, the finish reacted differently to mm -hmm. the water. So who knows what that's about? It's hard to know with fenders, and we all know that. Yeah, it, you, know, you you have to think. What did the did the other piece of wood have absorb more moisture than the top piece did? What what happened there? Maybe that's, that's I don't interesting. know. Yeah. So the finish has taken a little bit of uh, you know took some damage on the bottom half of the guitar, mm -hmm. and we did have to rewind one pickup. Wow, lost one of the original pickups. The other others are original, and um, I never messed with this guitar. Everything about this guitar is a hundred percent stock from from the day it came out of Fullerton. But this guitar has been with me and played on countless records, and, uh, and I own several Stratocasters. This one has a special place in my heart, but I've got a 57 and a 58, and uh, uh, they all sound good. You know, the maple necks are a little more brittle than uh, the rosewood necks. Yeah. But I think it's aged well. Um, I'm not ready to part with it. Any particular tunes that you've used that on? This was on a lot of Randy Travis. This was on a lot of the England Dan records. Played it, uh, oh God, just, it was a standard guitar in the case yeah. all the time. Yeah. So anytime I needed a Strat, this was the go-to guitar. And you know, you could go down the list of credits and figure it probably worked on most of yeah. those at some point. String gauge? Nines off the shelf, Diderios. Yeah. Straight up. Yeah. And picks. Well, we used to call them Tortex. Yeah. Well, they still are Tortex, aren't they? Yeah. The orange Tortex. Red ones and orange ones. Okay. Yeah. Mm hmm. I like the red ones for acoustic guitar. Mm hmm. Sometimes they'll just add a little more shimmer. Yeah. Uh, especially on a high tune guitar, high third guitar. Uh, orange is usually my color of choice. And they're easy to find. I, I tried to stick with stuff that I could stop in a music store and grab if I needed it. Right. Not get too exotic. Uh, okay, Steve, tell us about this telly. Uh, this telly has uh, a long, convoluted story. Um, it started out as a 58 Telecaster that I bought from a guy I went to high school with. About 1973 or so, um, I was working with Paul Yandel, and Paul yeah. has, has passed now. It was a spectacular guitar player who was kind of like Chad Atkins' shadow. Yeah. Anything Chester did, Paul could do it backwards and in heels. You know, kind of old joke about Fred yeah. Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Yeah. Everything Fred did, she did backward and in heels. So he was a great player, and. We got to know each other, and we got talking, and he said, hey, I got something from Chester, and I'm not going to use it. Uh, Bigsby sent him this palm pedal thing, and he used it for a little while and gave it to me. Uh, you want to try it out? So I said, sure. So Paul gave me this Bigsby palm pedal. Chet had already, <laughs> Chet had already sawed off the G pedal. Uh, <laughs> Chet was a tinkerer 
always taking things apart and yes. working on them. So they, I don't believe Biz, Bigsby makes this anymore. No, they do not. And the only other person I've seen actively use this is John Farrow, who was uh, Livy Newton-John's producer, songwriter, and guitar yeah. player for years. And he used this on, like, Let Me Be There and, you know, a whole bunch of her hit records early on. So I had this old Telecaster. This is not the, the body. I'll get to that story in a second. And I had put a Stratocaster pickup in the front up here, which later I found out was Clarence White's deal, too. Clarence apparently yeah. had a Strat pickup in the front. Yeah. I didn't realize it at the time. I just went into Showbud one day and said, I'm going to try something here. Yeah. So the palm pedal idea, the whole B-Bender thing was a... I was listening to uh, some of the records that Clarence was playing on out of the West Coast. And Benders had been installed on Nashville guitars much further back. Dean Porter put them on Grady's guitar and on Jerry Kennedy's guitars. Right. But those were on 355s, mm -hmm. 345s. And but they were also the the palm pedal type. They were. They were they were more complex than that, but yeah, mm -hmm. yes. They were. But the, the yeah. premise was is that you either used your arm or your back of your hands. Right. Like Buck Trent did that with a with his electric banjo that uh, shot built for him that had a plunger on it that he could kick. Right. So since I'm a sit-down kind of a player, um, I could never have gotten used to this. Like the Glazer or Glazer the Parsons, style, yeah, Parsons the, the, White. Yeah, yeah, right. The Parsons White string bender concept. Yeah. But I sure did think it was cool. What Clarence was playing was, uh, Clarence White was playing was so cool. So I hooked this thing up. This old Telecaster that I had, had, it was a tail loader. Didn't load through the back. So right. Uh, the, yeah. 58, when, yeah. yeah. They, it's a top loader because they, they didn't drill holes through the back. That's correct. And they just, and, and it just yeah, the string yes. ball end would catch in a little hole that was on the back side of the, That's, of the ashtray bridge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's exactly right. In order for the string to clear the back side of the ashtray, I had to chop a notch out of it right there. Mm -hmm. And so I put it on, and all this was on this old funky red body, and I'm pretty sure it was a pine body. Okay. Um, it started to develop a split in it. I mean, it looked like something the kid had built in shop, okay. you know, shop class. It was, it was <laughs> funky. Yeah. But I used it like that forever and ever. And then I get thinking, well, something's changing about the sound of the guitar. So I went out and bought a finished body and we basically took the entire guitar off of that old body and put it into this body. And at some point I'm going to go back and put all this back together in a pine body because it did make a difference. This guitar, anyway, I started using it. First record I probably used it on that was noticeable was uh, Eddie Rabbit. Um, I'm going to treat you right tonight was the record. And it was all Clarence White influenced. And then, but I used it on a bunch of things. I used it on some dirt band records and I used it on Ricky Skaggs. Uh, so anyway, it was one of those deals where I started using it and I had played pedal steel when I was a kid. So my sensibility was somewhere between a pedal steel player and what the Clarence White West Coast thing was all yeah. about. You know. Like... So you could uh, kind of thread the needle yeah. with a volume pedal especially, you know. Or you could get it, you know, greasier with a...
and I got it to where I could eventually get half pedals and uh, half stops with it pretty good. And uh, so this is what we used on on Patty on. Uh, uh, blame it on your heart. Yeah, blame it on your heart, and that was. Tell us about this 335. Uh, this is, I think, is 1966. Um, I've had it for a long time. Not really sure where the guitar came from. I don't recall where I bought it, but I've had it for a long time. Um, as far as I know, it's an original guitar, except that this was a tailpiece guitar with a, a, a block put in. Right. Um, it, so, had a, it had a trapeze tailpiece, mm -hmm. and someone put a stop tail on it. That's correct. And yeah. the keys are not uh, original yeah. but anyway I've used this guitar a lot I used this guitar um, for country stuff like the where the Grady Martin style mm -hmm. you know the real smooth thing with the echoplex and although you can't get Grady's tone it just isn't there Grady's guitar was a very unique guitar Pete really? Wade has that guitar they're called yeah. big red and uh, uh, Grady gave that to Pete, and it has a tone all of its own. It's a 355 to start with, right? And uh, and so, but we can we all got pretty close with this. But this was the go-to guitar when you had to do something that would emulate what the guys in LA were doing, hmm. or if you needed something real sweet and smooth, or if you needed something that would sustain for days with uh, the big overdone distortion arrow, uh, yeah. the big the big pop solo things like. Uh, uh, oh, I think I used this on Reba McIntyre's "If Is There Life Out There," yeah. Uh, and uh, but I also used it on Vince Gill. If you ever have "Forever in Mind," so it's a very nice. versatile guitar. Yeah. For for people that might not be familiar, what would be kind of a, a could you play like something in the style of Grady Martin just to give people a little a little, little yeah. taste of that? Grady was known for doing that little squeeze thing. Yes. Those little half-step half bends. people that had a style and yet he was a chameleon he would fit in with again whatever the record needed he'd yeah. play acoustic on like uh genie pruitt satin sheets mm -hmm. grab an acoustic guitar yeah. on marty robbins el paso he borrowed uh an archtop guitar yeah and played for five minutes and he had all the fills yeah You can just, it's a versatile instrument. You can do a lot of things with a 335. Yeah. With a, a Strat and a Tele and a 335, you can cover a lot of ground. You really can. Those yeah. are the go-to instruments to have in the box. Yeah. What were, uh, you know, through the years, what would you, you know, consider, you know, 
today you're using our, our deluxe reverb. Uh, what what would you consider like your your kind of go-to uh, kind of amp and, and effects that you would use, you know, today? I'm using a, a Princeton. It's a 65. Yeah. Um, I use that amp. I When I need to use something that's got huge power, I'll use the little Walter. Yeah. You know? Um, but I try to stay away from brute force where yeah. I can. Um, I still have my deluxes that I carried. I used to carry two, <laughs> carry two of everything. Um, the deluxes that have the, the D120s. Yeah. Got, you just added 20 pounds to them. Yeah. yeah. Right. And big and heavy. So uh, I would still go to those amplifiers yeah. primarily. Um, Depends on how much time I have to set up. Depends on how much gear I can bring to bring alternatives. Yeah. As far as effects go, I'm just not using a whole lot of effects anymore to speak of. I've never been a huge floor pedal rack guy. I, I didn't do the Bradshaw thing. There's a lot of things I didn't do. Everybody else does. And I always had the sense that, well, if, for example, I'll call one out by name. Brent Mason's first guy to, with Joe Glazer was to put that middle pickup into the telly. Yeah. And the next thing I see is that everybody's got the middle pickup in their telly. And it's kind of like, well, that's okay, but Brent's already got that figured out and he does it really, really well. Yeah. You know? And so why do I want to chase that other than there's the other side of that story is, is that if you have a producer or an artist who says, no, that, I want that tone, yeah. then you have to be, so it becomes a tool. Yeah. And you can have a telly set up like that in your box. But I didn't go there. I didn't go for the, the big pedal rack things on the floor. Um, and I never did chase the, the flamethrower volume deal. Well, Steve, really appreciate you coming on the show. It's an you. honor. Honored to have you. Uh, Zach, it's been a pleasure and a privilege to be yes. part of it. Thank you Thank so you, much. Thank you, Steve. All right. This has been an audio presentation by TrueTone, TrueTone.com.